Welcome to the podcast of Grace Covenant Church, where we are transformed by God's grace, connected through relationships, and committed to service. Don't you want to go to that camp? Good morning, Grace. My name again is Kevin Maurice, and I'm the associate youth pastor, which means I get to go to that camp. And in the youth ministry, summer camp is something we look forward to year-round, and this camp is going to be phenomenal. So if you're a student between 7th and 12th grade, make sure you get to camp. You don't want to miss it. And if you're the parent of a student in 7th through 12th grade, would you sign your son or daughter up for camp? It could be the best gift you give them all year because God really does amazing things at summer camp. Registration is now open, and if you sign up before June 18th, you'll receive a discounted price. Also, we never want financial issues to cause a student to miss camp, so scholarships are available. For more information, uh, to request a scholarship, or if you have any questions, please stop by our table in the lobby after the service. Questions. We ask them every single day. Sometimes they're as simple as, will you pass the salt? Or, when is camp? But occasionally, a question is as paramount as, will you marry me? Or, what should we name her? The more significant the question, the more important the answer becomes to us. And you can generally tell how much a person knows or how well-versed they are in a particular subject by the types of questions they ask. For example, if you take your car to the mechanic because the check engine light is on, and your mechanic asks you, at what volume are you listening to your radio? You can infer that this person doesn't know very much about cars, and maybe they shouldn't be your mechanic. Or let's say you're baking some cookies with a friend. You've got the cookie dough, and you ask this friend to set the oven to 350. If that person asks, is that 350 seconds or 350 minutes? Now you know that he or she doesn't know very much about baking. It's not that they're unintelligent, they just don't know the subject. And the question reveals that. If someone asks the wrong question, it means that they don't understand the topic. Now, in the Bible, in the book of Mark, Jesus is met with a very specific, extremely significant question. In fact, this may be the most important question anyone ever asked of Jesus. It's the most important question you could ask. If you have your Bibles, would you please open them to Mark chapter 10. In Mark 10, Jesus is traveling. He's teaching large crowds of people. He's healing the sick. And in Mark 10, 17, we get our question. The Bible tells us that as Jesus was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do to inherit eternal life? How do I get to heaven? This is the question that's been asked of philosophers and religious leaders since the dawn of time. And in Mark 10, this man asks Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It's a powerful question, isn't it? But there's something 
off about it. It's the wrong question. It reveals that this man doesn't truly understand the topic. It illustrates how lost he is because he doesn't fathom the depth of what he's asking for. He doesn't understand salvation. And this man in Mark 10 represents us. We don't appreciate what salvation truly means because we're stuck asking, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And there are three aspects of this question that demonstrate just how wrong the question is. Three different facets that we'll look at this morning which display a misunderstanding of salvation. The first problem with this question, the man asks, what must I do? What must I do to inherit eternal life? There is something within the human soul, a thought lodged deep in our subconscious, that we have to do enough good things to get into heaven. We have to be good to get there. We want to be good enough. Earn it, we say to ourselves, and that's the operative word, isn't it? Earn. How can I earn my own way? The, the image, the picture that many of us have of heaven is that of St. Peter standing at the pearly gates with a giant book in his hands of all of our deeds. He's ushering people in like airport security, making sure the right ones, those who have done enough good, get to go in. Former New York City Mayor Michael Bloomberg was recently asked about how he felt about his time in office and what he had accomplished. Mayor Bloomberg responded, I'm telling you, if there is a God, I'm not stopping to be interviewed. When I get to heaven, I'm heading straight in because I've earned my place in heaven. It's not even close. It's not even close. I think the mayor is assuming that humility won't be required. <laughs> they may have to widen those pearly gates a bit just to fit that ego through. I've earned my place in heaven. Really? What does that look like exactly? Wouldn't there be some sort of cutoff? And at what point have you done enough good to get in and not be left out? And how would you ever really know except for when it was too late to do anything about it? It's not even close. What's so striking about this comment is how closely it resembles our question. What must I do? This man with his question believes that he is able to act in such a way as to deserve salvation. So Jesus' answer is directed at that belief. Jesus tells him, you know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Don't steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Jesus tells him, obey the commandments. Don't kill. Don't steal. Don't commit adultery. These commandments all have to do with a person's relationship towards other people. Jesus is asking him, do you love your neighbor? To which this man responds, teacher, all of these I have kept since my youth. He says, I've done all of that. Does, does that make me good enough? 
And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have, give it to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. And then come follow me. Jesus says, You love your neighbor. Good. Do you love God? You're obeying all of these commandments. That's great. But what about the first commandment? What's the first commandment? Don't have any other gods except for me. Martin Luther, a law student and one of the Protestant reformers, said that the greatest sin is a violation of the greatest commandment. In the book of Matthew, Jesus tells us that the greatest commandment is to love God with all of your heart, your soul, and your mind. Don't have any other gods except for me. Jesus is saying, if you think you've accomplished salvation by obedience to some of the commandments, then obey the first one. Sell everything and follow me. And instantly, this man's heart is revealed. The Bible tells us that he walks away. He leaves sorrowful because he had many possessions. Effectively, some of the commandments were easy, but the first one, that was too hard. So he left. This man's problem isn't that he's wealthy. Money is not the issue here. It's that he's made an idol out of his wealth. Affluence has become his God. Not killing, not stealing, sure, I can do that, he says. But faced with abandoning riches and stature and all of the good that he's done to follow God, that's another story. It's as if this man is playing a game of chess and he knows the move he needs to make, but he's unwilling to take his hand off the piece. Jesus' response to sell everything is not a generic command for anyone and everyone. Rather, it's pointed at this individual in order to rid him of this determination, this perception that he could ever earn his own salvation, that he could work his way in to heaven. This man is an Orthodox Jew. He's familiar with the Scriptures, but he needed to remember the words of King David, a man who followed God, who said in Psalm 51, Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. King David understood that it's not about what you do to earn salvation. He's dependent on God to cleanse him of sin. What must I do? Jesus says, you can't do. Because you are the problem. The reason there is a need for salvation in the first place. That sin that King David speaks of is an intrinsic quality within each of us. It's the very nature of our own souls. And so if we are the problem, how could we possibly hope to rescue ourselves? 
It's like trying to drive a car without gas. It just doesn't work. In 1908, the Times newspaper in London sent letters to various professors and writers throughout England posing this question. What's wrong with the world? Upon receiving this letter, author G.K. Chesterton wrote the Times back saying, Dear Sirs, I am. Sincerely, G.K. Chesterton. I am. I am the problem. I am the one that needs saving. How could I expect to save myself? What must I do? Jesus says you can't because we're the problem. That is the first issue with this question. The next hitch, the next reason that this question misses the mark is this man's definition of the word inherit. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And caught in the middle of his own question is a miscalculation of what he's asking for. Because an inheritance is not something that you can earn. It's not a trophy that you win. It's not a paycheck that you pick up at the end of a workday. An inheritance is a gift. It's a gift. The answer is in the question. How do I inherit eternal life? You're using the right word, but I do not think it means what you think it means. This misunderstanding of an inheritance is like a graduation gift given to a high school senior. Let's say it's a brand new convertible BMW. All black exterior, tan leather interior, wood trim, surround sound system. This is a beautiful car inside and out. And the parents hand off the keys to this 18-year-old and say, it's yours. It's a gift. But it did cost $51,872, so you're going to pay me back for that gift. You're my child, so you'll work for me, and I'm generous, so I'll give you $8 an hour. Average of 1,800 working hours in a year. Subtract room and board and taxes. Let's say you keep 40% of what you make. Look at that. It'll only take you nine years and two months before you've paid me back for the car, and then you can go to college. Suddenly, that graduation gift doesn't seem as great as it once was. That 18-year-old is doing the math saying, wait a minute, I'm buying that car. It's not a gift. And if I'm buying it, I'll pick the color that I want. Thank you very much. If they're paying for all of it on their own, it's no longer a gift. And that is where this question goes wrong. If this man were really asking for an inheritance, he would know there's nothing he could do to earn it. He would understand that it is a present. It's a gift that you open when the proper time comes. And the proper time for an inheritance means that someone has to die. That is what makes an inheritance what it is, the fact that it requires death. Mark chapter 10 tells us that Jesus looked at this man and loved him. Jesus is looking at someone who earnestly desires salvation. He wants to be good enough to go to heaven. And he uses this word, inherit. But unlike this man, Jesus is fully aware of what that word means. 
and the implication that it holds. And Jesus has no doubt about whose death that inheritance requires. What must I do to inherit? You can't do anything. Someone has to die. Those are the first two problems with this question. We can't do enough. We can't earn our own salvation. The word inherit means there is nothing to be done. It's a gift. The third dilemma, the final issue with this question, has to do with this man's perspective, his view of eternal life. He is asking for eternal life. It is grand. It's marvelous. You can't define it. How could someone think that they could earn something that big on their own? If I told you that you could buy that car that we just talked about and that all it would cost is five easy payments of $19.95, would you believe me? Not at all. Because there is no way it's that cheap. The cost doesn't match the reward. And this man isn't asking for a car. He's asking for eternal life. Yet after asking what he needs to do to get it, he walks away. Because the answer was too difficult. Jesus told him, sell all of your belongings and follow me. And this man thought that Jesus was asking for too much. You and I, we we hear Jesus' words and we think, what a sacrifice he's asking this person to make. And we say to ourselves, I hope Jesus doesn't ask me to do that. But what if he did? What if he did? Would it really be that bad? If we think that Jesus is asking for too much, perhaps it's because we also have a small view of eternal life. We assume that Jesus is asking for this big sacrifice, but Jesus never, not once, Jesus never asks someone to trade down. He never asks someone to downgrade. He only ever offers a trade up because he offers salvation. It's eternity. So Jesus will not apologize for asking someone to give up what means so little to inherit what means everything. When Neil Armstrong returned to Earth from his voyage to the moon on Apollo 11, a reporter asked him what had he learned. After all, this was a man who had accomplished so much. He sauntered along the surface of the moon. He gazed out at the vastness of the universe, standing at the precipice of mankind's limit of discovery. What had he learned? Armstrong replied that when he set foot on the moon, he looked up, and there, suspended in the firmament, was a tiny blue dot. And in his words, it suddenly struck me that that tiny pea, pretty and blue, was the earth. I put up my thumb, and I shut one eye, and my thumb blotted out the planet earth. But in that moment, I didn't feel like a giant. 
I felt very, very small. Standing on the moon, staring at the earth, an astronaut felt small. That tiny pea contained everything, his entire life. All of the world's riches, all knowledge, everyone he ever knew or loved, and he blotted it out with his thumb. Standing before God, staring out at the infinite existence of eternal life, I believe that you and I will feel small. And the things that we worried about having to sacrifice to follow Jesus will fade away. It will be as if we could blot them out with our thumbs. So often I live with a limited view of eternal life. I become preoccupied and and worried about this little blue dot because it's all I can see right now. But Jesus says, I'm offering you eternal life. The streets here are paved with gold. That stuff that you dig out of the ground and make into jewelry to give each other on your wedding day, yeah, that's asphalt up here. The only exchange you're making is nothing for everything. Because with me, you get this life here in full, the way I wanted you to live it. And you get eternal life. I'm not asking you to sacrifice. I'm giving you all of it. What must I do to inherit eternal life? We can't do. It's an inheritance which means someone has to die. And how shallow is our view of eternal life if we think we can earn it? That is why this question is flawed. After this man walks away from Jesus, the disciples come up to him and and ask a follow-up question. Confronted with the reality that salvation could be difficult, the disciples ask in Mark 10, 26, then who can be saved? That's a great question. And with it, Jesus lands his final punch, the summation of his teaching, the point that he's been driving toward during this entire exchange. Jesus looked at them and said, with people, it is impossible but not with God. All things are possible with God. Impossible for people, but possible with God. That's what salvation is. It can't be achieved through human effort. It can only be accomplished by God himself. But why? Why can't we just be good enough? Why can't we just check off all of the right boxes and stroll into heaven? Why can't we earn our own salvation? Galatians 2.21 tells us why. The Bible says that I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. I do not nullify the grace of God. The grace of God. God. Grace means gift. Grace is a gift. What's a gift? It's something that someone gives to you for free, and you receive it, and it's yours. Grace is a gift. 
And the Bible says, I do not nullify, I do not reject this gift from God. Because if salvation comes through my own effort, through working for it, then I'm abandoning the gift and Jesus died needlessly. Jesus died to give us our inheritance. But if we can get to heaven in any other way, if eternal life is cheap enough to purchase on our own, then why did he die? If I can stand before Almighty God based solely on my own merit, then the Son of God died for no reason. In other words, we do not get to heaven. Heaven itself has come to us. That's the grace of God. The fact that Jesus came to earth, lived a perfect and sinless human life, was beaten and mocked, was crucified and died, and because of his death, salvation is available to us. And all we're supposed to do is open our arms wide and receive it. We must not reject God's grace by trying to earn it. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Nothing. It's impossible. Then who can be saved? Anyone. And it's only because of the grace of God. What does that mean for us? How do you and I apply this to our own view of salvation? We put all of our confidence, we place every ounce of our assurance, we put our full trust in grace. We trust in the gospel that Jesus died on our behalf to cleanse us from our sins, to save us. We stop clutching our own goodness and we cling tightly instead to Jesus Christ, knowing that only through him is eternal life possible because he died to give it to us. Maybe that idea is difficult for you because you don't think you deserve God's gift. Inwardly, you're saying to yourself, I don't deserve grace. I need to be good enough. I have to earn my own way back into God's good standing because I've racked up far too large of a bill. There's too much sin here. And if that's your thinking, I want to point you back to Galatians 2.21. Memorize that verse. Write it on a note card and put it on your dashboard. Tear it out of your bulletin this morning and tape it to your mirror. Remind yourself of this truth daily. If we can earn our own salvation, then Christ died needlessly. So don't count yourself out of God's grace. God's not counting you out of his grace. He gives us salvation, and it's a gift. And we must remember that this gift, following Jesus, means trading up. It's an upgrade. It's eternal life. That is our inheritance. But perhaps you're hesitant to follow Jesus. You're choosing instead to try to be good enough on your own because you're afraid that Jesus may look at you and tell you to give up something to follow him. 
You're afraid that he'll tell you to give away more money and to save less. Or your fear is that he'll ask you to follow him on a mission trip to the other side of the globe, to India or Thailand. Or that he'll tell you it's time to stop pursuing that relationship. So you live your life with one finger still on that chess piece, neither embracing the grace of God nor allowing yourself the fullness of his life here for you. And if that's you, I encourage you to remember that following Jesus does not mean a discounted life. It's actually quite the opposite. It's an unequal equation. It's a lopsided exchange. It's giving up so much and receiving everything. You give up so little and you receive eternity. What must I do to inherit eternal life? I'll tell you. You just take it. You take it. You take all of your sin, all of the wrongs that you've done to other people and to God, and you place it firmly around Jesus' neck. And then you drive nails into his hands. And you hoist him up on a cross and you watch as the pain overtakes his body. As that last breath escapes his lungs. And then you walk to a lawyer's office because Jesus has died. That lawyer opens up an envelope and reads the will and names you the primary beneficiary. And you are due an inheritance. You inherit a dead man's wealth. You inherit Jesus' righteousness. Because he died, you get everything that belongs to him. You were in hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt, and now that debt is paid off. And what's more, there is an abundance in the checking account, more than you ever thought you could see to eternity. And it's yours, all of it. That is what grace is. That's what salvation looks like. It's a gift, and you just take it. Will you do that today? If you've never trusted Christ fully for your salvation, would you do that this morning? Would you just receive your inheritance? Please join me in prayer. God, we come before you humbled by your incredible grace. Father, help us to put all of our trust in you. Remind us that we can't do anything to save ourselves, that only you can accomplish salvation. God, thank you for the gift of your son, the fact that Jesus died to give us our inheritance. Give us a proper view of eternal life. Help us to remember that following you means trading up. And thank you for all that you've given us. As we observe Memorial Day tomorrow, we're thankful that we live in a country where we can worship and pray freely. As we pause to remember those who have given so much for this country, we pray that we could look to you for our strength, for our comfort, and for guidance. Father, we thank you again, most of all, for your son. 
It's in his holy name that we pray. Amen. For more information about grace, visit our website at grace360.org.